jump into Genesis 7. We have made it seven chapters, or at least six. We're going to try to do the seventh here tonight, and I have so much to give you. It is not good when I have two weeks to study, because I come up with so much good stuff. So you guys ready? Put your, put your listening ears on. You got them on fast listening ears, because I'm going to talk fast. Okay, so the first 10 chapters of Genesis are the most hotly contested pieces of literacy written in all mankind. If you ever have wondered where is the highest, highest level of controversy of any written document, it's the first 10 chapters of Genesis. Hotly contested. Hotly contested. The first five words, in the beginning God created the earth. Okay, six. The earth is one word, right? In the beginning God created the earth. So the first five words of the entire, of of Genesis is like the hottest contested sentence. You could even say, in the beginning God. Okay, there you go. That'll just, you know, that'll incite all sorts of trouble with certain people. Hotly contested. So as we are going through these these first chapters of Genesis, I commend you for coming and learning so that when stuff comes up, you have the right word to say. You know what truth is because there is so much non-truth swirling out there. I need my New Horizon people Going out those doors, going out and living your life big. And when stuff comes up, you're like, um, excuse me, here's the truth. Okay? So I don't want even a shadow of doubt in your mind. So we, um, we're going to back up. Uh, I, I told you we hope to get through chapter 7. But in chapter 6, if you remember, it talks about Noah. It ta- first of all, it talks about that incredible amount of evil that was across the whole world during Noah's day. It says in there that uh, every inclination of every thought, of every heart, of every man, every minute of the day was evil. And remember I told you about what an inclination is. What's an inclination? You know, some people can have a lot of of, um, actions that are good, but in, you know, if you back it up, what's an action? An action that comes out of a thought. And what does a thought come out of? An inclination. An inclination is that thing in your heart that sets the rudder of every, every thought that you might have. And then every thought is going to produce an action. And so God said, you know, he backed it all the way up. God has the ability to go to the very depths of your being. He knows your inclinations of every thought, of every heart. And what he found during that time frame was that every single one was evil. We had talked about the the remnant. We talked about not only is there a group of people that is uh, consists of you know is what makes up a remnant, but inside of every human being there is the stamp of God, and that is the remnant that God reaches in to every single human being and draws them to Him. And as long as there's a remnant within any human being or a remnant within any kind of country or group of people, God has hope. He loves His remnant. And as long as he has a remnant inside of your heart, even if you're the most evil person, if there's still just a, a glimmer of a, of a remnant that would, could turn towards him, he, he has hope. But in these people, in the whole entire group of human race, he had lost hope. He did not have even the inclination of a thought or an action that was towards him. So God had to destroy it. He had to judge it. Okay? So this is where we find ourselves. So much controversy over. Was there a flood? Why did God do that? He's so mean. I don't don't like a God that's that mean. I'll tell you what. I don't like a God who doesn't know right and wrong. My heart cries for justice. My heart cries out for truth. My heart cries out 
for righteousness. And if I had a God that didn't cry out even as loud as my heart cries out for those things, we would be messed up. So what we have is uh, God looks down, he sees all these horrible things. His heart is grieved. Is he an angry God or is he a loving God? Loving. His heart was grieved. He was so sad. All of the goodness that he had made in that garden, gone. And the word says in there that the earth was corrupted because of the evilness of men. We talked about the fact that you, how many of you guys have Tupperware or plasticware or Gladware, whatever it is, and you put a chunk of salmon in that thing, and so the bowl is full of salmon, right? You take the salmon out of the bowl, and it still smells like salmon. So the salmon is now in the bowl, like in the bowl. So when they talk in Genesis 6 about how the earth was filled with corruption because of the evilness of men, there's also words in there, and I wish I had time because I only got 37 minutes to go through this whole thing, so I'm not going to read it. But it also says in there numerous times, I have, the earth is corrupt. We as human beings have authority. He has given us authority over the earth, and what you do with the earth affects the earth. How you live. Your little square, little bit of real estate that you call home, you have dominion over that. And how you live either either justifies that and, and cleanses it or it corrupts it. I'll tell you what, this land right here, right here, this land, New Horizon land, this land is sanctified land. And so is every place you put your foot. Because that's your job. God gave you dominion over the earth. Amen? So we have this corruptness. We have this horrible stuff. But God sees one man. Who does he see? Noah. He's blameless and righteous in God's eyes. In the presence of all of these evil people, they, he made a swinging difference. He was a very different, he was kind of a different cloth. And it says that Noah, what else did he do? No. Walked with God. See, hold, hold hands, walk with God. We talked about that. So Noah is a very, very different person. So what is God? Now, we talked about the fact that God got a little crazy with Noah. Does God ever come down and chat with you a little crazy sometimes? So God comes down to Noah and he says, okay, Noah, listen, I'm very sad about what's going on, so I'm going to send this stuff called rain. And you're going to build a big thing called a boat. Actually, not a boat, an ark. So God got a little crazy. And he, he said, build it this big. And he, he gave the dimensions. Um, and uh, all these animals are going to come to you. Okay, God, you're really talking crazy now. All these animals, and you're going to feed them. So you have to go out and get all the food for them. And uh, so for 120 years, Noah builds the ark. For 120 years. Have you ever been able to stick with any project for longer than even 120 seconds? Especially if somebody's looking at you going, what are you doing? 120 years he keeps the vision. Everybody say, give me the Noah ability to stick it out. Come on, people. Come on, people. We can do this thing. Next time you want to quit because you're tired, just think, has it been 120 years yet? Because if it has been, maybe you can. But until then, absolutely not stick with it. If God's called you to do something, stick with it. Amen? Okay, elbow the person next to you and say, that's for you. Okay. So, hotly contested, hotly, hotly contested. Did Noah really build an ark? And could an ark really, really do what he called it to do? Could you fit every animal in that ark? Could an ark of these dimensions actually work? Okay, I'm going to tell you what I found because I got proof. All right? I need eyeballs. Okay. So, the dimension... Okay, now remember we told you... Numerous times that um, many, many other civilizations have a flood story. Many other, and they all have it kind of different, okay? But the biblical uh, rendition of the flood story is the most sane and able to have actually happened, 
Okay? So let me read you this. The dimensions of the ark, as given in Genesis 6.15, are reasonable. While those of Barosis, which is another writing about the flood, and the kind of cuneiform tablets are unreasonable. According to Genesis, the ark was... Uh, 562 and a half feet long and 93 and two-thirds of feet wide and 56 and a fourth feet deep. This is huge. This is really big. Which are natural proportions for a ship of that size, being, in fact, very close to those of the great steamers which are now constructed to cross the Atlantic. Let me tell you something. Ships of this size had not been built in our time until about the 1800s. Now we build bigger ships. But in the 1800s, they finally built a ship that was bigger than this. But up until then, this had been the biggest ship ever. Um, Skipping down. The cuneiform tablets represent the length and width and depth, each as 140 cubits, and the dimension which is incredibly unseaworthy. According to, uh, let's see, the biblical account... In the biblical account, nothing is, uh, let's see. Anyway, so they talk about the fact that that ark is very, very seaworthy and able to be, to, uh, to actually, uh, float. Um, now, is the, you know, the question, could, could a man actually build that? I mean, he didn't have saws. And he didn't have hammers. Could a man actually do that? Is it humanly possible? Without bulldozers and all of that kind of thing. Uh, here's a, a, a British writer who wrote a very uh, controversial, very interesting book called The Flood Reconsidered. And he writes this, Yet even granting all this, some may feel that the ark was too large for any man to have ever attempted. A survey of the ancient world shows the fact is the very very reverse. One is constantly amazed at the enormous tax, tasks which our ancestors in, attempted. The Great Pyramid was not the work of the late pharaohs. It was the work of the Fourth Dynasty, long before Abraham. This pyramid contained over two million blocks of stone, each weighing two tons. Its vast sides, 756 feet long, are set to the points of the compass to an accuracy of a very small fraction of one degree. The so-called Colossi of the Memon, again, are not of recent times. They belong in the 18th dynasty of Egypt, cut from blocks of sandstone. They weigh 400 tons each and were brought 600 miles to the present position. As our thoughts go back to the Colossus of Rhodes and the Pharaoh's lighthouse and the hanging gardens and the ziggurats and the step pyramids or even our own country to Stonehenge, we have no reason to suppose that early man was afraid to tackle great tasks. It has been estimated that four men could have cut, dressed, and installed approximately 15 cubic feet cubic feet of lumber every day. Thus, if Noah and his sons worked a six-day week, resting each Sabbath, they could have cut, dressed, and installed 4,680 cubic feet of foot wood in a year's time. Since it is estimated that the ark would require 380,000 cubic feet of wood, Noah's sons would have accomplished this feat in 81 years. Are we to believe that God, the creator of the one of man and the one who endowed him with his intelligence, was unable or unwilling to give Noah adequate instructions that he could actually carry out? So the ark could have been built by just a few men. So much in dispute. So much in dispute. We have to realize that the Bible, and in this time, and in this this age, that the Bible stands very strong and pure and true. Very strong. So let's turn to um, Genesis 7, verse 1. I'm going to skip. I'm trying to skip here some stuff so that we can keep going. So what we've heard here today is that the, the ark is actually very seaworthy. It's very actually very able to, be, to have been built. And that this, is, this doesn't have to sound like an absolute fairy tale. Chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, this is after he's built the ark and it's all done, The Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Why does he get to get in the ark? 
Why does he get to go in the ark? Because he's righteous. He has chosen rightness. Everybody say chosen rightness. Does, does it say because you're perfect? Does it say because you've never failed, you get to come? He has chosen rightness. So he gets to come into the ark. And do you hear the, the gentleness of his call? It is such a loving call. Go to the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in your generation. And then he goes on and he says in verse 2, Take with you seven of every kind of animal, a male and its mate, two of every unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven of every, other, of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep the various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did that, all that the Lord had commanded him. Very interesting. Here is Moses writing in 1500 B.C. Prior to the law being given and the understanding of clean and unclean, supposedly. But he's giving directions to Noah over a thousand years prior to take in clean and unclean animals. How did he know that? Have you ever wondered that? Maybe not. I have. Clean and unclean. Well, that didn't come till thousands of years later, at least 1,400 years later. Clean and unclean. Remember what we learned in chapter 2 when God went ahead and slew that animal and made coverings for, the, for Adam and Eve, the first sacrifice, the first death that is ever recorded in all of creation? And remember I told you that there was in information given as to how to sacrifice and how what things are what things are right and what things are wrong. Remember I, we we learned that. Well, we believe a lot of scholars believe that during that time information about clean and unclean came forth then. So this is not a discrepancy. Some people look at this verse and say, "See? There's a discrepancy. It hadn't had been taught yet." So and what's it doing here? No, God taught it. Okay? Clean and unclean. Six pairs, or seven pair, seven of every kind of the clean, and one pair of the unclean. Now, um, why did he say seven? Seven of the clean. Why do you think seven? First of all, clean animals were food, and they were also used for sacrifice. So there was going to be heavy usage of these animals right away when they left the ark. Now, the unclean animals were not food, and they were not sacrificed. They just needed to go out and repopulate. But the clean ones, God needed extra of them. So that's why he said, take seven. Now, the question is, there's, there's a little bit of discrepancy. Was it seven pairs, or was it seven actual animals? So it would be three pairs and an extra. So a lot of the um, scholars think that it was three pairs and one extra so that when he got off the ark, he could immediately sacrifice. And we're going to find out in the next chapter that's what he does. So Seth, did you know that? Not everybody came in just pair by pair. Not all the animals. They had seven. Did you know? Who knew that already? Okay, the, the scholars in the house. Now you all know. Who knows it now? There you go. Very important information. Okay, so here's my question. Do you, how did that happen? See, a lot of contention goes over these animals coming. How in the world did that happen? You can't fit all those animals in that ark. How'd they get along? This absolutely can't be. That is such a lie. That is a joke. That is a fairy tale. And they relegate the story to fairy tale. So let's just talk about this. Could that many animals actually fit in the ark? How do you know? Okay, well, let's listen. <laughs> um, first of all, I want you to notice in there, it doesn't say every animal, every breed. It says every kind. So back in those days, there weren't like poodles and chihuahuas and what are some of the others? Pugs, pugs, and labs, and da-da-da-da. It, it, it was a dog, the kind. Okay, so there was... Not breeds, but kinds. All right, so you got to understand that. Um, using the most conservative estimate available, the length of, uh, of the let's see, let me, uh, uh, 
Morris should have, has, has shown that the ark is 473 feet long, 72 feet wide, and 43 feet high. It is three decks, because it's said to build three decks. It had a total area of approximately 95,700 square feet. 95,700. How much square footage is in this building? 13,000 on this floor. So 13, 26, what's that, six of these buildings? Seven of these? How many? Somebody do the math. Eight. Eight? Somebody do the math. Eight of these buildings is the square footage in the ark. So think about that. The gross tonnage, uh, okay, we won't worry about that. So critics of the flood account, account have stated the ark was not large enough to handle its assigned cargo. Such critics, however, generally have not taken time to consider how large the ark really was or the cargo that it had to carry. For the sake of realism, imagine waiting on a railroad crossing while 10 freight trains, each pulling 52 boxcars, move slowly by one after another. Now, how many of you guys get stuck in Puyallup when the train is going by? Okay, so let's think in your head, seven, no, 10 freight trains pulling 52 cars going by. That is how much space was available in the ark. For its capacity was equivalent to 520 modern railroad stock cars. The barge of such gigantic size with its thousands of built-in compartments would have been sufficiently large to carry two of every species of air-breathing animal on the world. And doubtless the tendency towards taxonomic splitting has produced more species than can be justified in terms of the genesis kinds. On only half of its available deck space. So you should, he probably only used half of the ark for the animals. Exactly. The remaining space would have been occupied by Noah's family, five additional, additional representatives of each of the comparatively few kinds of animals that were for the, the clean kind, and all their food. It's doable, people. A running track, Starbucks. Who else would be needed in there? I have so much more here that I could show, but it is possible. It is, they're fine, they're doing all their math, and they're seeing that this is not ridiculous to think that it could have happened. It absolutely could have happened. They would have fit, okay? So let's move on. 40, it's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. Now you're going to hear that word a lot. 40 days and 40 nights. 40 days and 40 nights. What's about the 40 days and 40 nights? Why not 39? How about 57? 40 has a significance. A significance. 40 represents, every time in the Bible where you hear 40, it represents a time of great trial and tribulation. And coming out of those 40, 40, coming out of those 40 days, represents a great victory for good and a great defeat for evil. 40, and that's why a lot of times we'll do 40-day fasts. Dwayne did two, has done two 40-day fasts since we've been uh, running this church. When we have come up against very, very difficult things, he has done two 40-day fasts. And I can say this of him because I was impressed. That man whittled down to nothing. He was just, he was nothing. He was a bag of bones and a scrack of hair on top. He was nothing. But we were going through great trial. And after he did those Two fasts at two different times during the early days of our church. Amazing breakthrough. Amazing breakthrough. Forty years, Israel was in the desert. You talk about chaos and trial and tribulation walking through the desert for 40 years. But when it was over, what did they do? <sighs> Went in and took over Canaan. Moses was on the Mount, on Mount Sinai for 40 days. Elijah had a 40-day fast. Christ fasted for 40 days before he met with Satan and beat his tail. 40. Jesus was on the earth 40 days from the day he, uh, when the cross, from the cross to the ascension. 40 days of, of his last moments here on earth. 40. 40 is very, very important. This time was a time of trial. Of just, There was an incredible amount of chaos going to be happening during those 40 days. But at the end, there was going to be great victory.
And Noah did all that was commanded him. It's amazing he keeps saying that. Why does he keep saying that? I think I do most of what God commands. Most of the time. But Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was... Uh, verse 6, Noah was in was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth, and Noah and, and his sons and his wife and his wife's sons entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds of, and of all creatures that moved along the ground, male and female, came to Noah. They, the animals came to Noah. Noah didn't have to go out and find them. The animals came to Noah. Very doable. Who's in charge of the animals? God. Can you imagine the migration? What movie is that where they're always, they're all migrating? I think it's Ice Age of some sort. No, not. Where they're all migrating. They're running away from something. Not Noah. Don't watch the movie Noah. Okay, because it's bad. It's not good. What do you want? Land before time. Are they? Is that one another? You know, they're like. Okay. Well, they were. They, they were like moving from all over in, right? Okay. So verse nine, male and female came to Noah and entered the ark, and and as God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth. Now I'm going to skip down to verse thirteen because this little section down here is a repeat of that, and I want to make sure we hit it all, and I don't want it to be disorganized. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, whom you're going to get to know very well in the next couple of weeks, very interesting guys, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark, and they had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds. Remember, not breeds, but kinds. All livestock, um, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. See that little everything with wings? Do you know what that means? Mosquitoes were on that thing. What else? Everything with wings. Shoot. Centipede, yeah. Woo. Pairs of all creatures that have breath, the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female. Everything, every living thing as God had commanded Noah, then the Lord shut them in. Now I want you to notice they didn't talk about fish. Well, what about all the fish of the sea? They're in the water. But every living creature was going to be wiped from the earth. Well, first of all, it says that has the air of breath and they're not, you know. But, you know, fish still take in oxygen, right? So there's a lot of wonder about the fish. Anybody ever wonder about the fish? Spencer. Okay, so here's the deal. In a little bit, I'm going to explain to you what happened during the flood, but... but it's believed that all the fish died too because when fresh water and salt water mixed, the salinity all messed up. Messed up, And with the opening of the springs of the deep, which we're going to learn about in a little bit, the temperatures went like this. Okay? Now, of the fossil record, and I'm going to talk about the fossil record. Of the fossil record, 95% of the fossil record is marine life. Fish. Coral, 95% of it. Of the remaining 5%, 4.89% is plant life. There's a very minute portion of our entire fossil record across the earth is land-walking animals. Very, very small, very minute. So you have to understand that. The fossil record is huge with fish and marine life. Are you learning something? Okay. So we got, um, we, got, we got all that taken care of. Now let's jump back up to verse 11 because here's where things uh, start heating up. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the 17th day of the second month, on, the day, on that day, all the springs of the deep burst forth and the floodgates of heaven were opened and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Now let me just tell you, those two verses, those two verses changed Everything. Absolutely everything. Two things happened. The springs of the deep burst forth, and what's it say? The, the floodgates of heaven opened. 
So let's kind of look, let's kind of look at this a little bit, okay? So the floodgates, um, the great fountains of the deep burst forth, or the great deep, what's yours say? What does your Bible say there? The springs of the great deep burst All the fountains of the great deep burst open. What else? Well, we're not going to deal with that one. The first one. Anybody else have any other words? Yes, Marcy. Okay, did you know that recent discovery, scientists now believe that all the water that you see, if I was going to bring a globe and show you, and you would look at the globe and it's all blue with a few little brown spots, right? The globe is covered mostly by water, right? Everybody agree? Scientists now believe that the water that you see is less than 25% of all the water on earth. That there is over 75% more water under the earth's crust. There are oceans underneath us. There is so much water that is on this planet, it is incredible. So when this says the the fountains of the deep opened up, what does that mean? The violence of those two verses have never, ever been seen since. Think of it. The entire earth kind of just like erupted. Waters came gushing out from oceans underneath the crust and it went just sloshing over the land. Now with that great of an upheaval, uh, scientists believe that many, of, you know, a lot of the research shows that there was incredible amounts of volcanic activity during this time. Explosions ripping open. Have you any any of you in your um, school time learned about how all the continents fit together? And there's a thought belief that at some point the the continents broke apart and started floating apart. It makes total sense when you look at the map. This is when it happened. I don't doubt it. There was a huge, everything just ripped apart. The fossil record, um, Mike, can you show that uh, map of the world? It didn't go up there. Oh, shoot. Well, I have a map of the world that, um, you know, it has it all laid out and all the continents laid out. And uh, in it, all the fossil fuels. How many of you guys have ever heard about fossil fuels? What is fossil fuels? It's coal and oil. Where did it come from? These vast, huge layers in the earth of organic matter. Plants, animals, all buried at the same time in huge sections of the earth. How did that happen? Fossil fuels come from organic matter. Huge amounts, vast amounts laid down into the Earth's crust. And if you look at the map where fossil fuels are originated, it's very, very interesting. It's in a pattern. It's as if you could almost look at it and see where the waters came gushing out and wiped out the entire vegetation and all of the inhabitants of the Earth and in just huge, just and buried it all over in certain sections of the world. It's incredible. This was the most amazing, magnificent, incredible situation. I'm going to read to you some. So if this is true, geology should tell us it's true. Can I tell you? Geology says it screams that it's true. But most geologists don't want to believe it. So they make up all sorts of out there. Let me just read you a couple of findings, okay? I don't want to bore you. I have six minutes left. Some thick and extensive sedimentary layers have remarkable purity. The St. Peter's sandstone spanning 500,000 miles in central United States is composed of almost pure quartz, similar to the sand on on a white beach. How did it get in the middle of America? 
It's hard to imagine how a process other than global liquefaction could achieve this degree of purity over such a wild, a wide area. Dead animals and plants quickly decay, are eaten, or are destroyed by the elements. Their preservation as fossils require rapid burial in sediments thick enough to preserve their bodily form. This rarely happens. When it does, it's usually from an avalanche or a volcano erupting. Um, Eruption. The blanketing layers are not strata spanning hundreds of thousands of square miles. Liquefaction provides a me mechanism for the rapid burial of trillions of fossils in appropriate layers. A similar statement could be made concerning fossilized footprints in the tracks of animals. See, we don't understand this fossil record. It's vast. And it's over vast amounts of area where it's all just laid down beautifully. It could not have been done had not there been complete and utter global liquefaction. Almost, um, let me scoot. Okay, so um, let me scoot. Let me find another one. There's good ones. Um, numerous fossil graveyards contain stupendous quantities of fossilized bones of many different kinds of animals thrown together in jumbled masses so as to be explainable only in terms of a catastrophic water action of vast proportions. These include the Agate Spring Quarry in Nebraska, the Siliwak Hills fossils, Hills fossil beds in India, and the fossil fish graveyard strata in Lompoc, California, the old red sandstone in Scotland, and many other fish graveyards in Italy and Switzerland and in Germany. In many locations in the world are found extensive rock strata containing sometimes billions of fossilized animals, frequently densely packed together. They are often displayed, uh, they often display evidence of terror and struggle. These facts seem to suggest anything but slow, calm situations of formations. Did the, did the flood actually happen? Well, I don't know. I don't know. You know, they have trees. They found fossils of trees upside down going through the strata. That is not a tree that stood there for thousands of years just getting, you know, buried a little bit by, by dust. It's upside down for heaven's sake. The branches are going down and the roots are going up. How did that happen? Catastrophic liquefaction swirling, some of them are upside down, some are sideways, some are straight up. How'd it happen? Very interesting that there is absolutely no proof of human fossils. Why? 95% marine animals, four point whatever of plant life, Point oh whatever of land animals, nothing found that can truly be proved as human. Why? Good question. Many scientists ask this question, but may I ask you, was God intent on preserving humanity or destroying humanity at this point? He wanted to preserve Noah. Noah's preserved. He's in an ark. All the rest of humanity, was he into preserving them or destroying them? Destroying them. I don't know what all happened. But I am not surprised that humanity's remains could not be found. And still can't be. They still might. We don't know. We're always digging. But very, very, very interesting. Amen? Okay, so during, what, would you, what do you think you would be like if you were a human alive during this time? There's a man. He's really weird. He's over there. He's building this thing. You know, what in the world is he going to... Is he going to open a restaurant, a hotel in this thing? What is this? Let's go have a party. Remember how extremely evil they were? Remember how I explained to you that so much has come out through other writings about how even the women had lost their ability and they would have sex with anything that walked down the street, out in the street. There was no care or concern, every inclination. How would you, what? And then, so, so evil. And then this, this, all of a sudden this day, 
And I, I didn't tell you about the, the, um, the sky falling. Turn back to Genesis. <laughs> Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. The world is just about ready to return back to its pre-creation state. And God said, let there be light. Let's skip over to verse 6. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate the waters from waters. So God made an expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And so it was, it was so. And God called the expanse the sky. So there was separation of waters. There was this firmament that was over the earth during the whole pre-flood time where it was water. He had separated the water. There was a firmament. It was, it was a thick area of just water over the sky. There was not a blue sky and sunshine and gamma rays coming through and all sorts of crazy things like we have now. It was a firmament that was over the earth. And the Bible says that the, the floodgates of heaven were released. That firmament went... Things changed. Can you imagine being alive during that time? What would you do? All of a sudden, you know, everything's falling apart and waters. And you, I would run for high land. Have you ever, like, driven around thinking, what would I do? If anything, I've got my plan. Schools have their plans, too, right? They practice going wherever. I've got my plan. But the Bible says that the waters covered the whole earth 20 feet above even the highest mountain. The highest mountain's gone. So you could, you could truck to the highest mountain and you, it, it's coming. Can you imagine the chaos? Can you imagine the violence? Can you imagine the fear? Can you imagine the scariness? Can you imagine what was going on? Imagine it. Terror. Complete and utter terror. Some of these fossil beds with these animals, they're just, they're, they're crammed in there. Like I said, as I read, it had, it showed terror, like they were struggling. Give me five minutes. Let me just wrap this up. But the Lord shut him in. For 40 days, the floods kept coming on the earth, and the waters increased. This is verse 17. Sorry, Mike. And they lifted the ark high above the earth, and the waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, and the creatures that swam up. Uh, that swam over the earth and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and the creatures that moved along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. Complete and total judgment, destruction, chaos, and annihilation. Except... For those in the ark. Except. So I want you to have in your mind just this incredible, just terrible chaos going on. And death and fear and da 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 And eight people in the ark. The waters that killed and destroyed everything lifted the ark. God shut them in. The door was shut by the almighty hand of God that preserved them not only from the raging waters, but from raging, the raging of men. Can you imagine, where would you run? The first place I would run would be to the ark. Let me in. I'm rethinking this. First Peter 3, verses 18 through 22. That ark is a semblance, a resemblance of Christ. The wood, made of wood, the cross. The ark was covered in pitch. The word pitch means atonement. It had three floors, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It had one door. Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one will enter in but by me. By faith, Noah entered that ark. No one can enter that ark unless they have faith. 
First Peter three eighteen through twenty two. For Christ died, for Christ died for sins once and for all. The righteous for the. Uh, for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He has put to death in, in the body, but made, he was put to death in the body, but made alive in, in the spirit, through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. This says Christ went and preached to these souls. You talk about mercy. We don't know what happened. While the ark was being built, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but, uh, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Evil still exists. Our world is filled with evil right now. Amen? There is a buying even now. Which way is life going to go? I feel like Noah sometimes. I am the only one. And the evil, every inclination around me. Anybody ever feel that? Well, you're not the only one. There's a few here. Matthew talks about the, uh, Jesus talks about in the book of Matthew and other gospels about the parable of the wheat and the tares. If you remember, the, the guy goes out and he sows a whole field of wheat and he goes home and he goes to bed and, and while he's in bed, some, an enemy comes and sows weeds throughout the whole thing. And, and when they wake up, everybody looks out and is like, what happened? And should we go and pull them all out? And, and the, the owner says, no, we're going to wait until the day of harvest then we'll pull them all out and we'll separate and burn the chaff and, and preserve the righteous. That's the dispensation that we're in right now. Matthew 24, verse 36. Turn over there just very quickly. I'm very sorry. Are you all okay? Are you falling asleep? Are you wishing I'd shut up? Matthew 24. If I can find it, then we're good. No one knows, this is verse 36, no one knows about that day or that hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days of the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. Two will be in the field and one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you must also be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Even as chaos and complete annihilation surrounded Noah... God shut him in. God shut him in. Because of his righteousness, God protected him. He will protect you. Even in the chaos and complete annihilation around Noah, the waters that killed and destroyed everything around him lifted the ark and gave him safe passage. That's you. Noah was cocooned and he, was, he had provision all because he was righteous and blameless and walked with God. 2 Peter 2, 5 through 9. I have two more scriptures and then we will end. Because I want you to see something, people of God. Because I see way too many of our people, of righteous ones who walk with God and they are in fear. They sense a coming destruction. They sense a coming judgment. And they are in fear. Noah had nothing to fear. Come on. He 
had nothing to fear. He was going to go through incredible chaos and judgment. He had nothing to fear because God closed him in and cared for him. And I will look at you in the eye right now and say, people of God, do not waste one second in fear. Do not do it because there, yes, yes, there will be chaos around us. Yes, there will be judgment that is coming. Yes, there will be a horrible and terrible day. But I will tell you what, if you walk with God, if you have your hand in his and he looks at you and he sees the righteousness of Jesus all over you, he will close you in and the very waters that are sent to destroy will be the very thing that lifts you up. No need for fear. Satan can get you afraid, then you back up and you don't do the things that you will not live How will you live if you're afraid? But yet, how will you live if you're not? First Peter 2, 5 through 9. Are you enjoying yourself? We're going to start with verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example as to what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who is distressed by the filthy lies of the lawless men, for the righteous man living among them, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul. How many in this room are tormented in your righteous soul for what you see around you? If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. Hallelujah! Does that just get you excited or what? I'm way more excited than you. Final chapter, final verse, Isaiah 32, verses 17 through 20. And this is your verses. These are your verses. The fruit of righteousness will be peace. The fruit of your righteousness. This is Isaiah 32, verses 17 through 20. The fruit of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. My people will live in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, and undisturbed places of rest. Though hail flattens the forest and the city is completely leveled, how blessed you will be sowing your seed by every stream and letting your donkeys and your cattle range free. You have a different future. Why? Because you're perfect? Because daily you reach up and you grab the hand of God and you say, let's go for a walk, Daddy. I want to be just like you. I want to be in your presence. I want to be there.